You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So today's podcast is kind of special. It's with Tracy Dawson, who's a Canadian-American actor and writer who got her start at the Second City Toronto. Uh, she wrote for and performed as a lead actor on the television series Call Me Fitz, starring Jason Priestley, for which she won the Gemini Award and the Canadian Screen Award for Best Lead Actress in a Comedy Series. And she's written and published her first book. It's called Let Me Be Frank, a book about women who dress like men to do shit they weren't supposed to do. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the S-A-N-D. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Tracy Dawson, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be here, Kelly. I'm trying to remember when the last time we laid eyes on each other. I think we might have talked after yeah. that, but this is 15 it's years a ago. Lot of, a lot of years. I mean, listen, I can't get over that the year 2000 is 22 years ago. I don't understand what's going on. So like, to me, it's all a blur and that's okay. We don't have to, I'm good at other things. I don't have to be good at that. That's fine. When, so I'm trying to remember, do you remember what years you were at on the second city main stage? Yeah. 98, 99 in Toronto. Yeah. Yep. That's a long time ago. And it's like, it doesn't feel that long ago. (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I yeah, no, I, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. All right, but we're not we're not necessarily here to talk about that. We're here to talk about your book, Let Me Be Frank. And you actually note in the introduction to your book uh, that it was in some part inspired by your meetings with various producers, networks, and studios looking to get staffed on a television series. So, what happened in those meetings that maybe pushed you down this path? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely like an inciting incident uh, where I was 
meeting with people as you do when you're a burgeoning TV writer with executives. It's called staffing season and they have all these shows and then they've got all their new shows that are coming in the fall and they need writers to, they need to staff up. Right. And so I was meeting with this executive at a big studio and um, this executive, a woman, no, I don't know why I'm saying it like that. She says to me, um, you know, did any of our pilots grab you? Could you see yourself writing on any of them? I said, yes, I like this one. I like this one. I like this one. And then she just plainly said to me, oh, well, none of those have any female needs. So, and I think I must've, I, 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 I think I must've turned red. I, I remember feeling hot. I remember heat. Yep. And I remember, I remember shame. I felt, mm. I felt really stupid. Because I like to think of myself as someone who's like in the know. I know what's going on. I'm I'm three steps ahead of you. I'm very prepared. I've read all of your pilots. And that was a curveball I, I really didn't see coming. I had never thought of myself. <laughs> and this is why I felt stupid. I, I just had never thought of myself as a female writer. I thought of myself right. as a writer, right? And yeah. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that of uh, people who've been othered many, t- like, you know, historically, right? And mm-hmm. so... um it was, I, I was upset. I was shamed. I felt ashamed. And then I went home and I got angry, which I'm sure yep. uh, you can understand. And I started to think, well, I started to think about Tootsie and Dustin Hoffman. And I was just like, he didn't even look like a woman. Like he didn't mm. even pass. I was like, I could probably pass. And then of course I was like, that take, that seems like a lot of work and I'm, I'm pretty lazy. So um, yeah, but it stuck with me. Right. So that, that incident stuck with me, incident stuck with me. And I started to put it in my writing, like that sort of anger, sort of like I wrote a pilot about a woman, like a reverse Tootsie original comedy pilot about a woman in comedy who was dealing with, you know, sexism. And um, we had a huge star attached to executive produce and we took it out and we didn't set it up, blah, blah, blah. But it definitely always stayed with me. And then I thought maybe this could be a TV idea of, you know, women throughout history who disguise themselves as men just to do what they wanted to do. And I thought, oh, there's not going to be enough people. Like I was like, there's not going to be enough people to, for, for a TV show. And I uh-huh. started to research and I was like, oh, there's a lot more people yeah. than I expected. And so it initially started as a, a TV idea, which I didn't put in the book. Cause I was like, we're not here to talk about my TV career, <laughs> mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Um, you know, we didn't set that up. It was a very tumultuous time with the writers guild, the agency strike, which we didn't have to get into, but like every, all the TV readers had to fire their agents. It was just like yeah. a very tumultuous time. We didn't set the, that project up. Also, uh, anthology series, very hard to set up, right? Expensive, different time periods, la la la. So I was sad. I was like, all these women I've learned about all this research I've done. And I was like, I wonder if this could be a book. I thought I've never had before, Kelly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, you know what? Let's just start writing. Let's just start writing. And um, yeah, that was like the beginning, the beginning of the end. So it's very research laden. I mean, like heavily research. And, and uh, you did all that on your own? Oh, yeah. I did not hire. I did not hire a NYU student intern. No, like I it. did. <laughs> uh, when I. OK, here's a funny thing. I, I, I read a lot. I watched a lot. I, I, I'm just, I've, I discovered in this process that I love research, that I find it a little addicting. I find it like being a sleuth, like a private mm-hmm. detective. And I wasn't happy with one source or two sources because the more you read, 
like it's built into the premise of the book, which is who gets left off the page, who's writing history. Right. And so I didn't find myself trusting one source or two. Like I wanted, I wanted as many sources as possible. And of course, when it came time to building the bibliography, Kelly, (laughs) my editor was like, you know, put together a selected bibliography. And I thought she meant like select what you want, (laughs) Mm -hmm. select the most important books. And then she was like, oh, no, if you reference it or quote, if you reference it, it's in the bibliography. And I was I mean, I will admit my agent did have to help with that process with the yeah. with this because we don't have citations, but we do have like the bibliography is uh, so big. It's, yeah. it's it's ridiculous. But it's also exciting because if people do want to read more and I hope that they do. And I've heard that I've heard that people who read the book do they go, oh, my gosh, I didn't know about this person. I want to know more. They can go to the bibliography. And they can like, oh, okay, this book, that book, that podcast or whatever. All right. In a second, I want to talk to you about some of these women. But before we do that, you found this really bizarre code from Chicago (laughs) that stated, quote, any person shall appear in a public place in a dress not belonging to his or her sex. So it's either with intent to conceal his or her sex shall be fined. Mm -hmm. And you would think this is like, I don't know, 20s, 30s. It's 1964. Yep. And, it, it, uh, you know, common knowledge uh, uh, that this was used as a way to just um, police uh, queer people, basically. Yeah. It was it was it was to raid gay and lesbian bars because it, I obviously focus on the women and the trouser issue, which is if your trouser, if your fly, if your zip front is in the back, if your zip front is in the back, what a statement. Mm-hmm. If your zipper is in the back. Uh, those are women's pants. And if they're in the front, those are men's pants and they could arrest you. They could haul you in, wow. which is, which is unbelievable. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so that's what I focused on for the book, but I didn't get into, you know, uh, whether there were drag shows, like whether, whether there were, you know, right. gay bars with, with men, uh, dressing as, you know, cross-dressing or whatever. So yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's just as mind boggling as that rule that was on the, the Parisian books, like the French books. Do you remember that part in the George Sand chapter where, you know, if you're wearing trousers, I mean, it was on the books for 200 years. It didn't get taken mm-hmm. off the law books until like 2000, like 2013, maybe right. where it was like, you know, you need a special note from your doctor if you are a woman and you want to wear trousers. <laughs> um, all right. So let's talk about some of these, these women. Um, uh, talk to us about Hatshepsut. So Hatshepsut was a, a female pharaoh, absolutely incredible. And she started up as a queen regent because, as was sometimes the case, uh, the king would die. And then the next person in line was like a toddler, like a baby. Yeah. And, um, you know, so she effectively was ruling as queen regent, which was not uncommon. But what happened was she was seemingly really good at her job. Mm-hmm. And um, she achieved so much as she ha- was like one of the most prolific builders of ancient Egypt and um, like re- established trade routes and was like, uh, so what a happened job was- job creator, right? Did that as well? Yeah, she, she, she was just really great at her job and like how she was previously sort of written about in history books by these early Egyptologists- was that she was a vile usurper and that she was taking power where she didn't deserve mm. it or that she was. And, and, and that just is just completely just laden with misogyny and sexism. And later, 
more recent uh, historians and Egyptologists are like, it seems like she was maybe trying to preserve her family line. Like she was stepping mm-hmm. in and she was doing a really good job and she didn't try to kick out the baby king. She didn't do anything like, you know, she didn't she didn't try to have him murder. Nothing, mm-hmm. nothing untoward. But what she did do was as she gained power and as she was having all these achievements and building, she started to take on through uh, imagery and these statues and, and it, a more masculine look, right? That's why she fits into the book. So she's doing something, quote unquote, she shouldn't do, right? She's a woman. Right. It was not traditional uh, for a woman to be a pharaoh, to be a king in ancient Egypt. Um, and so they started off with like building up her pecs. You know what I mean? And sort of, yeah. and depicting her with a, with a crown, which was very uncommon. And then eventually they, they added, um, like a fake beard to her face mm. and, uh, they got rid of the breasts entirely. And it's really interesting because I, I feel like it, it's like, um, it's like political imagery, rich. Just like, okay, guys, I've got you. Like, you can trust me. I'm just one of the guys. Like, don't be freaked right. out. And she was in power for like 20 years. It was the longest reign of a, of a, of a woman, which before her, it was like, it was very much considered like a temporary. This is a temporary thing. Like the messaging was very much like, she's just here. This is a holdover. This isn't like a real thing. But with Hatshepsut, it was like, no, this is for real. She was very successful. She was very like, again, the building and the, the imagery. And then when she passed away and the toddler, you know, was a, was an, was an older young man. Um, when, when his reign was coming to a close, uh, that's when he started to try to wipe her sort of from history and like get rid of a lot of these, they couldn't get rid of her buildings because the buildings were some of the most incredible that were built during her time. But, um, again, some people like, oh, that's because she was bad. It's just like, no, it kind of seems like maybe he was trying to cleanse the line so that it just, it's like just the males all, uh, you know. It's it's interesting too because that's uh, erasure is all over this book in a variety of ways, mm-hmm. e- either as a precursor or postcursor, right? You know, like 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 that. And and you say uh, in in their first line in the book is quote, "We all know that history books were written by the people who held the power in the pen." old white dudes end quote. Um, and, and so and you do more show than tell with regard to that, because it's, it's part of all these individual stories, which makes it's why it's a compelling read, but it's just, it's just a fact of history. Yeah. It's, 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 it's like something that I say in the Mary Edwards Walker um, chapter, someone that I love. And again, uh, not everybody in the book is, was um, taking on a disguise, you know, right. it wasn't, so it's like, there's a lot of, I, I really stretched the premise to, to really include what the subtitle says, a book about women who dressed like men to do shit they weren't supposed to do. So Mary Edwards Walker, everybody knew that she was a woman, but she, she said, I don't dress in men's clothes. I dress in my own clothes. And she was the, first, she's the sole recipient of the medal of honor. And she was the first surgeon in the civil war. And what I say in her chapter is, God only knows the um, innovation and the achievement that we missed out on because old white guys were sticking their fingers in their hairy ears saying, no, 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 we don't want to hear from you. We don't want that idea or we don't, you know, it's okay. You know, like, oh, I've got this great invention and I want a patent. No, 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 we don't want that. Like, can you imagine? Like, I mean, I'm sh- I know it's still happening today, but yes. it's, it's just, it's like we we're such an incredible species, this human species. And yet there's some people throughout history who've said, 
Like, it's okay. We don't have to be that great because we don't want it from you. It's just like right. cutting your nose off to spite your face. Completely. Um, did you know what witch prick pricking was <laughs> before you wrote this book? No, I certainly didn't. I mean, obviously, we all know about the witch hunts and how horrific yep. it was and how many people were, you know, sent to their deaths because of like this made up code. Uh, but but also the way that they hunted, the way they searched out the, for these witches was also all made up. You know, uh, let's throw her in the lake and see if she floats or sinks. You know, mm-hmm. and it's just like, this is a great system. So witch breaking, no, I was pretty horrified. I, I definitely had a hard time when I was researching this chapter uh, and writing it because it was, it was a downer. It really brought me down. Like it just was so um, horrifying. But essentially for the listeners, you know, there's this long uh, needle and it's stuck into uh, a person's body. I'm sure it's no surprise that most of the time the witches were discovered to be women, um, even though not exclusively. And so sticking this long needle into their body. And if it doesn't, uh, if the person doesn't feel pain or if they don't bleed from that spot, then they are a witch. Um, you know, and just the, the details of the process. It's not like it was like, come into this sanitized, beautiful room with a chaise long and like, mm. we're going to, we're going to prick you. No, it was like town square, strip the body, shave the head, like very like, are we sure this isn't like, uh, uh, I'm innocent before I'm proven guilty. Like this seems like you're jumping ahead if you're, Mm -hmm. uh, taking these steps. But yeah, I had to lie down uh, at one point and just like hug my dog, uh, while I was doing this chapter, because the book is obviously written with levity and I'm, I'm a humorist. Uh, my background is in comedy, but this is some heavy stuff. And I mean, that's what I, that's what I gravitate towards anyway, is like the darkness and the light. You know what I mean? Like yep. the, the, the stuff that I write generally is like, let's look at how messed up it is to be a human. And like, let's also laugh at it because that's like m- what my job has always been. Well, I, you know, it's funny because um, I don't know if you've given this some thought with the news and this last week, but you have a whole section on Iranian women sneaking into stadiums. Yes. I was like, I was uh, not surprised at all when I right. saw the fire and the bravery and the uh, everything that's been on display, because as I was uh, researching this chapter, first of all, I was blown away when I, dis- I discovered uh, these women, because it's a very recent story. I mean, I'm quoting things all the way up to 2019 in, in, the, in the book. And then the only reason there wasn't more information is because the pandemic was happening and people weren't going to the stadiums anymore. But uh, when I found out that there are all these women in Iran who love football or soccer to North Americans, uh, and they just want to watch, they just want to be part of the fandom. And, um, and so in order to go to the stadium to watch these games, disguising themselves as men, and like there's YouTube videos of like tutorials of how to do the makeup and how to do the wig. It's just so brave. And so I was so thrilled to discover them and, and to, to do more research and to realize, oh, Iranian women are not some stereotypical, like, uh, whatever the negative stereotype is about, like, you know, pa- uh, passive women or no, this is like a fiery, uh, these are a fiery bunch of people that are so inspiring to me. And so 
to see the this uprising and, and almost like leading this uprising because the people in Iran, it's obviously not the, just the women who are taken to the streets. It's it's women and men saying, you know, we're done with this. You know what I mean? Like it feels like it was led by the women. Yeah, this this strikes very close to home for me because my boss is an Iranian woman mm. uh, who is my dear friend and who just about four hours ago gave birth to her first baby boy. <gasps> Oh, wow. Welcome to the world, Cyrus Delilly. Oh, um, uh, and and uh, and my baby, uh, my baby gift, which will have been opened uh, by now. I found an uh, Iranian national football onesie. <gasps> that is on its way to the Jalili household. But this, you know, it's those images that we're seeing right now of these incredibly brave women in the street, you know, tearing this off with, with and knowing that like the worst thing could actually happen or is happening. It's, it's maybe the most, I don't know. It's the book feels prescient in that way of like, Oh, and now this, but you know, that kind of struggle, you don't, you don't get through it without those brave acts. I mean, very it's super scary but like even in the sort of as i was wrapping up the chapter i was talking about uh this this thing that had had begun in 2020 when this this viral video this video went viral on twitter of a woman riding a bike with her hair out and the hair blowing in the breeze and that that this is such an image right now is the hair blowing in the breeze like and that it's illegal and and she was committing two uh uh criminal acts right she was riding a bike which women are not, not supposed to do and she and her she wasn't wearing the the head covering and so and she was so when i saw that video i mean i was like oh my god like and she was arrested and 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 i don't know what happened to her but the joy and the strength in her face and as she was waving to onlookers and raising her fist and and then all of a sudden you know more and more videos of women riding their bikes so it's like this is something that it feels like you can't like something is happening and you're not going to be able to squash these people. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, the Margaret King section is amazing in terms of this sort of right, this lineage. And, and can you talk to us a little about who she Uh, was and then the other people involved with this? I just love that chapter and I love Margaret King and, um, you know, I'm, I was supposed to be in Germany right now and we were going to go to the place where she actually, uh, disguised herself as a man to go to medical school in Jena, Germany, which is two hours, I think, south of Berlin, but I had to postpone my trip until next year. But um, so Margaret King was an aristocrat uh, born into great wealth and great privilege in Ireland. Um, And her family, like, you know, she was one of, I think, two or three daughters and they hired, um, a governess to come in mm-hmm. and, you know, educate the girls. The, the education of girls back then would have been uh, playing cards and serving tea and how to sit properly. And uh, reading was certainly not encouraged. Reading was not, uh, but, but they happened, uh, but those parents <laughs> happened to hire a famed women's right activist, author, uh, extraordinary Mary Wollstonecraft. Now she wasn't famous but she took this job. And as I say in the book, you know, oftentimes uh, writers and thinkers have to supplement their income with uh, taking care of other people's kids. I mean, I certainly have in my day. Mm-hmm. But um, so there she was. And I don't believe that they had any idea that uh, this person that they hired as a governess was going to come in and start talking about, you know, uh, fair wages 
and like the proletariat and like women's issues and equality and that it's great to read books because it broadens your mind. And, you know, she only lasted a year in that household. But the mark that she made on Margaret King is is phenomenal to me. The fact that it was one year and then Margaret King became almost like a disciple of Mary Wollstonecraft and uh, decided to leave her privilege, leave her husband, leave all of her children, which she would have had to do in those days, uh, completely relinquish all rights and visitation to the children because she fell in love with a man while they were vacationing <laughs> on the continent. And um, so she, so she decided to go after love to go after fulfillment, but also she had raised all these healthy children. And, and at that time to have all of your children survive and to live was a huge deal. And, and, and Margaret knew that. And so she's like, I was good at that. I took care of them. I breastfed them. I'm a, I'm a caregiver. So Mary Wollstonecraft always said, you know, women shouldn't just be uh, uh, nurses and mothers. They they should be physicians. They should be doctors. They should study because it's natural inclination, blah, blah, blah. So Margaret was like, yeah, why not me? And Margaret happened to be really tall and a little, you know, I think she was strongly built, let's say, Mm -hmm. like a large woman. And so disguising herself as a man, I think was uh, not... um, a problem. Like I think it happened quite easily for her. And she went to medical school in Germany and she ended up writing a book about like uh, how to raise healthy children and like the benefits of breastfeeding, which again, very hotly contested. It was just very common to, to have a baby. And then, especially if you're an aristocrat to throw all those kids to a wet nurse to, to um, feed them from like to not breastfeed. It was really uh, a big deal anyway. So Margaret King then, uh, so Mary Wollstonecraft ended up giving birth to Mary Shelley, who wrote mm-hmm. Frankenstein. So there's like all these like ins and outs of the book of people that I talk about because Mary Shelley's obviously in the author section of the book of, yep. uh, because uh, many people don't know that she published Frankenstein anonymously and initially her, her name was not on the pages. But anyway, Mary Wollstonecraft died uh, a few days later after giving birth to Mary Shelley. Um, And, you know, as Margaret King continued on with her life and choosing what she wanted to do and going after what she was good at, which, again, just groundbreaking and unbelievable for the time. uh, Mary Shelley sort of found herself on her doorstep in Italy and Margaret King got to sort of um, nurture her and guide her in in certain ways, which is just an incredible full full circle moment from the person that she got to spend only one. She never saw her again in the flesh, which is. Truly, I just, as I say in the book, I truly feel like they were soulmates. I feel like they were very special, like cosmically connected or something, you know? You mentioned the sort of this section that comes about halfway through the book, which you you title Anonymous. Um, And I I literally had no idea that Jane Austen published. She she never, her name was not appearing in, in life when every single book. Yeah, so... This is something that um, my most well-read friends, I I, I did a poll amongst them. Nobody knew uh, 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 any of this stuff. And so I was like, that made me all excited, right? I was like, oh, there's going to be a big author section right in smack dab in the middle of the book. Uh, Yes, Jane Austen in her lifetime, while she was living, never had her name appear on any of her books. They were only published anonymously. Her first book was published uh, as credited as by a lady. Right. And Mm -hmm. then the second one was by the author of such and such. Right. So 
um, the great thing about it is it, it was not uncommon to be anonymous in those days. You know, it was, it was considered unseemly um, to sometimes put your name on the stuff that you published for both men and women for a time, but especially for women. You know what I mean? Like it was, we always get a little special something, don't we? It's especially (laughs) bad for you guys or you ladies. So um, uh, where was I going with that? Um, Well, additionally to the Bronte sisters, they they had uh, male pseudonyms. Yes. So, so the great thing about Jane was um, she did not take a male pseudonym and she did not say anonymous. I love that she chose by a lady because it's like saying, Oh, I'm, I'm a woman, but I'm not going to tell you who I am because I'm not supposed to, but just make just like, just so you know. And I love that. Um, and the Bronte sisters only published in their lifetime using male pseudonyms. People do not know that, which is, which is mind boggling. And it made me even more excited about writing that chapter. You know what I mean? And, and Mary Shelley, initially Frankenstein was uh, published with no name whatsoever, but her husband uh, wrote the the foreword or the whatever they were calling it. I guess it was a foreword. And so, you know, a lot of people thought, oh, well, he really wrote that because she was 19 at the time. And they thought, what, a 19 year old girl would write this monster story? I don't think so. But the, the, the book was so popular that second printing onwards, she put her name on the book. So she did get to sort of I hope bask in that, uh, that success, even though, as I say in the chapter, you know, that, that book being a huge, it was, it was, it was a big, it was a success, but it didn't like, it didn't lead to her getting, you know, like she had to keep working and she had to keep striving and she kept being rejected. And, and, um, it's like, can you picture like a man who had the kind of success that she had with Frankenstein? like keep having to prove herself over and over again uh, himself. You know what I mean? Like it it was never easy for her, her whole life. You have, you have what you have one hit movie as a male director and you're easily going to have nine more shots at, even if they, all those films are terrible. Well, the thing that you hear too, about coming out of something like the Sundance, right? So it's like people are all these different, like up and coming directors are coming out. And it's like, when you finish and you're a man, they're waiting, they're waiting with the jobs and I've heard from other from other people, women and, and people of color, that's just not the case. You know what I mean? That it's like a little bit like, mm, but you haven't proven yourself. It's like that guy hasn't proven himself. But I guess his color and gender. Yeah, totally. All right. In a moment, I'm going to ask you for your yes hands, Terry. But before I do that, one more one more person, uh, uh, Tarpe Mills. Well, Tarpe Mills, I. Okay, so Tarpe Mills in the 40s was the creator of the first female superhero. Uh, Miss Fury uh, predated Wonder Woman by eight whole months. And oh, wow. um, the thing about Tarpe Mills is that uh, most people thought that she was a man and, and she intentionally sort of de-genderfied her name because her, her given name is June, June Tarpe Mills. And so, um, but... But then she, she she couldn't hide for very long because when it came out that this person who had created this amazing, stylish, sexy, like uh, incredibly powerful, but with no superpowers, superhero who was a woman. And then they found out that it was created by a woman. Well, the newspapers and the press just went mad. And she was an absolute sensation during World War II, which isn't a surprise given like, you know, the men were off at war, yep. the women were taking on a lot of uh 
jobs that would have previously been reserved for men. And so this, this, this comic book character took off at this time and it was incredible. What I want to know is where's the Miss Fury movie? Yes. Why am, when am I going to write it? <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, I have some ideas. I have some ideas for the movie because I, I think that it absolutely sh- like the Wonder Woman legacy is just so massive. And I love those movies and, and I love what they've done with her legacy. Right. But the fact of the matter is, is that Miss Fury is, is so cool and it's so specific. And there's like a, there's a humor in it. And there's, it's like she's fighting Nazis because Tarpe Mills sort of baked in right to this, to this moment that she, that we were, that they were all living through, which is world war two and made all the villains and everything like Nazis. I just think there's something there and it it should be made. And I don't understand why um, none of her stuff is in print. There's no biography written about her. It's kind of a shame. So it's like, I've got my little chapter in the book and I, I kind of, it's one of those things you're like, I don't think I'm done with Tarpey Mills. I don't really know how it's going to go, but it just feels like there's too much there. Yeah. I mean, when I think about what that film could be, it could be both a biopic about her and the character sort of living side by side. You're in my brain, Kelly. Okay. All right. Well, I was we'll actually talk- thinking, I was actually thinking if you, you know, you can either edit this out or keep it in, but I was thinking it could be cool. Like, how the hours was like three women, three timelines yep. mm-hmm. and also book related. Right. And so what if the uh, there's Tarpe Mills, the creator, there's Miss Fury, and then there's the author who discovered. Yeah, sure. Who I like is, that. who is like, and maybe they're not an author. Maybe they're an educator. Maybe there's someone that finds out and says, we have to do this thing. I don't know. Obviously like my specialty is comedy and not uh, superhero movies, but <laughs> so was, so was jo- so John Favreau. Hey, that's a good point. Right. You know what? This leads perfectly into what's going to be coming up. With the yes and yes story? And, the yes Let's and. do it. What's your okay. yes and story? So it's so great to, to, to have been thinking about this because as people in the, in the, who are listening to the podcast probably know, you let, you let your guests know ahead of time. Hey, I'm going to ask you for your mm-hmm. yes and story. And so it's really, you start to think about it and, and it's been marinating in me. And I think, wow, my whole career is a yes, is yes. And mm-hmm. like, it's all, it's so unexpected, the twists and turns that uh, I have, that my career has been, you know, some people choose one lane and it works for them. And then they go and they go, or they don't, they just stay in a flat line and they try to survive. But the, the book itself is, the, the yes and story in addition to the the big picture, which is my career and all the twists and turns and, and opportunities that I've had to say, okay. So when I sat on the couch that day and I was feeling sad that that TV show, we hadn't sold that TV show version. And I said, I wonder if this is a book. And that was like, this is a scary thought. If you've, yeah. if you've never thought I want to write a book or I could write a book, but I was so emboldened and I was so connected to the women that I had already researched. And I, all I could say was, I I have to find a way to tell these stories. Like I have to. And so I was like, yes, this could be a book. And <laughs> so I just started writing, like just to have that idea, which is a little bit scary. And it's like, you know, I'm not 25 anymore. And sometimes yeah. as creative people, like even if we're middle-aged, I think you, you, you gotta, it, 
if it scares you a little, that's what you got to run towards. 100%. And I love this episode of yours, of the show I was just listening to with the uh, uncertainty, the couple, the uncertainty couple. I loved it because um, everything he said about like saying yes and, and like challenging yourself and pushing yourself. I, I agree. And so to me, sitting down and being like, Hey, why not? Let's see what happens. I'm going to write some pages of this, of this. Um, I'm going to reach out to some people in the literary world. And I'm going to literally just wear my heart on my sleeve and say, is, is this a book? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And luckily they very excitedly and enthusiastically said, yes, this is a book. And so I, that was, that's the thing that I, it's been an amazing lesson because it's like, you just don't know what's around corners to talk about uncertainty. You know what I mean? Right, and so right. and it's like, it's like um, finding the curiosity, right? The curiosity of like, I don't really know how this is going to go. And I, am I going to write books now? Cause I've already got another idea for a book and we're talking to Harper Collins about it. And it's just mm-hmm. like, wow, that's, that's interesting and strange, right? <laughs> Kelly, like, it's like, we don't know where, where we're going. And that all comes back to my beginnings at Second City, I think, which is even though um, I came into Second City as, you know, a real character comedian, you know, and they, and they, they uh, had seen me on stage and they asked me to come audition. It wasn't like I was like gunning, right. Mm-hmm, like other right. people work their way up, you know, yep. of the, of the touring, the tour co and everything. And so, um, so I did not come in as like, I'm the strong improviser. I was like, I'm the strong character comedian, you know, who's wacky. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but what I learned is, is just like, just the being in the moment, like just being ready. Like it's, it, it just set me up for like basically my whole entire career because I don't know what the offer is going to be. Right. Like what, what life is going to, you're yelling out to the audience. Can I get a suggestion? <laughs> it's just like, you literally don't know. And um, yeah. And the other thing that I think I was thinking about too, is like how Second City was like, how that's like an anthology. <laughs> like the shows are like these, these um, scenes, right. And, and there's a theme, you know, there's definitely like s- sort of a theme, but it's like, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about things that are important to us in these, in these bite-sized ways. And then I went off and, uh, you know, was a stand-up and a character comedian. But then, then I wrote a play that was written by, uh, sorry, that was produced by a big theater in Toronto. And it was like an anthology and it was these mm-hmm. things. And then I write this book and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's like, this seems to be my, uh, I don't know, like that's sort of the, the medium that I like to work in. Yeah. Like but, a pastiche almost of a patchwork of, I mean, I think what you what you what you're leaning into, which I like very much, is your work, your art is mirroring your life in regard to uh, learning and and then and then showing other people and then learning again and 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 the the constant pivot that we've got to do, and and because if you don't, I mean, those are the unhappy people. The unhappy people I know in my life just never could they they once they got thrown off track, they they thought that was it. Mm. Man, that's, that's wild because, uh, oh, I, I just thought of something that you said that was made me want to say something and I can't remember, but yes, I, I think that, 
Oh, and it's what it made me think of is it's funny because when I go to a restaurant or like a place where there's a wine, like what I love is variety. I love combos. I love a wine flight. I love a beer Mm -hmm. flight. You know, I want to try, I want to stay open to this idea of like trying as much as possible. And, you know, it's, 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 it's like, it's, it's like, I'm just aware of my mortality and I want to like get as much as possible as I, as I can. I don't know. Does that make sense? But absolutely. Yeah. The next book idea is definitely like, you know, in the same (laughs) vein. And I just, yeah, it's a, it's just a wild life. The book is called Let Me Be Frank. Tracy Dawson, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Kelly. The Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Thank you.